Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello there. You have found First Rounders, Nature Biotechnologies podcast, and I am Brady Huggett. I'm the host of this show. Okay, the guest today, Katrine Bosley. She was scheduled to come into New York, into our studio there, but then the pandemic hit and we all, we all went into pause. And so we um, talked about this and readjusted and did this through audio video. Uh, I do not prefer it this way. I would much prefer to be sitting across a table from someone. I think you get a better conversation, but this worked. Um, she's really easy to talk to, and she has had an amazing career in biotech, beginning almost quite literally at the bottom. Her first job in biotech was an administrative assistant, and she has worked her way all the way up to be... Uh, she was CEO of the highly visible CRISPR company, Editas, with lots of stops in between. So we talked about that, and we talked about um, when she got to Cornell... Her experience there sort of turned her away from an academic life, and she began to look for a field where she could work at the intersection of science and something, and she wasn't quite sure what, but that ended up being biotechnology, this intersection of science and business, really. And yeah, we talked about her growing up as a Midwestern girl, as she says, in Ohio. All that and much more. Anything else to get you ready? No, I, I don't think so. So here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Katrine Bosley. Listen up. It's a little echoey, but this is, I mean, this is how life goes now. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and we've been, you know, learning what everybody's uh, backgrounds at home look like and lighting and, and all those things. Children and pets running through the screen. Children and pets running through the screen. Yep. Um, so are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, I do not know where you grew up. Uh, so I actually grew up in Ohio, uh, just east of Cleveland in a town called Mentor. Uh-huh. So suburb of Cleveland and went to public high school there. A wonderful place to grow up. Uh, still have some family there. And, um, you know, Midwestern girl. Yeah. Yeah. So how, why... I mean, why that area? Was was that like the long line of your family there, or I, I don't know? A couple of things. My On my mother's side, my ancestors had been in Ohio for 
gosh, they were some of the first settlers in Ohio, little tiny farm town called Homer, Ohio, which is a very small town in central Ohio, going back six, seven, eight generations. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And then on my dad's side, um, also from Ohio generally, um, but he he grew up in that town mentor where I grew up. And his parents, my grandparents, uh, were there, and they had a nursery business. So there, there were a lot of nurseries in that area of Ohio, both in Mentor and then over into Madison. Um, it was a good place. If you're growing plants where you want to grow them in a tough winter climate, so they're very hardy, yeah. that's a good place to do it. And so there were um, quite a lot of nursery businesses there. Not, not anymore, of course, but... That was my grandfather's business, and I grew up running around the nursery and, you know, doing little piecework like any kid does when there's a family business, like sticking cuttings and weeding and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, it's wonder wonderful place to grow up. But so, I mean, I, I actually don't know really anything about nursery. So, does that mean mm -hmm. you have a, a a big portion of land and then you cultivate plants and sell them, or yes, or that is okay. Exactly. So yeah. So it was it was wholesale. So not retail. It was wholesale. And my uh, my dad grew. He grew a couple different species. So but he and my grandfather both grew a lot of rhododendrons, um, some azaleas. My grandfather grew a lot of holly. My dad didn't do holly, but he also did some house plants, some ivy, and other house plants. So a bit of a mixture. And, and like any business, you know, you you figure out what's selling and you know what your customers are looking for. In this case, the customers being more the retail nursery shops, but it was, um, you know, we were, there were greenhouses and, um, you know, I, I still, uh, every time I step into a greenhouse, it just takes me back that, that sort of warm, humid air that yep. smells like plants growing, you know, that earthy smell. Yeah. That earthy yeah. smell. It's wonderful. Yeah. So you're saying, so they sold wholesale to the retailers then? Yes. Oh, yes. wow. Okay. So that sounds like a pretty big, big operation. It was, and, and they also did, um, each of them did some hybridizing as well. So, for example, there's uh, my grandfather, my grandfather did a little bit more than my dad, but they both did some. There's a, a beautiful yellow rose named after my grandmother. There's there's a rhododendron named after my grandmother. There's a rhododendron named after my Aunt Ginny and another one after my Aunt Patricia. Um, so, you know, that was not a little bit more of a, a side part of what he did. Because I think he just, you know, he really loved plants and it was interesting and fun. And I think all nurserymen did a little bit of that, at least back in those days. But, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, we, everybody grows up, whatever the context you grow up in, it feels normal because that's yeah. the only thing you know. Yeah. And so for me, normal was just, you know, your dad, your grandfather each kind of run their own business and are doing these creative things that, you know, Yes, sure. My grandfather's hybridized roses and named them after my grandmother. Of course, yeah. that's normal. You know? So he was ble <laughs> he he would breed roses, come up with a brand new strain no one ever seen before, and then he'd be able to give it a name because he created it. Exactly. Oh, yep. that's just, that is cool. Yeah. All right. I mean, I was going to ask how you got your interest in science, but it's kind of mm. seeming clear how you got your interest in science. Yeah, and and also it's just it was part of what we grew up with. My my mother is actually very artistic. She uh, was originally an art teacher, but then later she worked for the local public television station, WBIZ, as the staff artist. But we were also a family where science was cool. And, you know, actually also, um, 
it, so Ohio ge geologically is essentially a former ocean inland ocean ocean bed and so there's there's a lot of limestone there and there are limestone quarries that are full uh -huh. of fossils and in fact i'm looking at my desk right now I'm, I'm i have this little fossil of two brachiopods that came from medusa quarry in ohio and when we were kids we'd sometimes go there like on a family weekend and on the weekends when they weren't working the quarry you could go in and just chisel out some fossils and you know that wow. was just that was just the thing we did. And you then that fossil was yours. You could bring it home and you'd have a collection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was amazing. And trilobites and crinoids and thousands of brachiopods. I mean, it was just like literally so many fossils in there. You, you're guaranteed to find stuff. Uh, I probably can't do it these days anymore. But back in the day, they were like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Call I mean, out you... a couple pounds of rocks. <laughs> do, you, do you remember, you know, finding... Uh, something that was beyond your normal fossil, like uh, an actual. Yeah. Well, so these these are all ocean fossils, right? Because right, this, okay. was, this was this is literally an ocean floor, yeah. the bed of an ocean. Um, look, for me, every single one of them was absolutely amazing, and you know, certainly when you found one that was more perfect, when it was more complete, I do remember this one brachiopod that was also sort of the edges of it were, were tapered. So brachiopods essentially kind of like a like a, a, a clam, but they come in different shapes and sizes, just like clams come in different shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. I found one that was really beautiful. And for some reason, it, it was also sort of pearlized. I'm not quite sure what, maybe siliconized, I'm not sure what the chemicals or the, or the, the actual rocks were, but it had just this beautiful sheen, um, not just the perfect shape, but this beautiful sheen with it as well. But I have to say, the, the critters that were, were always most exciting to find is if you found a really good trilobite. Because you know, yeah. a lot of times you could, you could find like the little edge of a trilobite, you know, just like a little bit of its back or a little bit of its eye. But sometimes you could, you could find the whole animal, and that was always very exciting. Um, yeah. I have to ask this before we go on. I, like, what does the local artist do for the TV station? Well, so remember, this is going to be back in the sort of 60s and 70s, uh -huh. so pre-computer stuff, right? So mm -hmm. every time you needed to do, for example, station identification, you know, this is Channel 25, WVIZ, you need a, a something that says that. So there would be things like that. Also, for whatever they were producing locally, so certainly there were programs that they got from national public television and they would broadcast them locally, but you would also produce things locally. And they did some kids shows and some science shows and some local news programs. So, you know, she built the set for the local news program. Oh, cool. Um, there, was, there was some show they did for kids that involved something about dentistry. And I just remember she did like paper mache mango size teeth and you could take the teeth out. And so on the show, they could show you like what you do when you're brushing your teeth and flossing your teeth. And one had a little cavity and one was, was perfect and one had a big, you know. So it was it was all kinds of different things, and it's in all kinds of different media as well. It's just whatever needed to be done, and there was there were folks there who could also help build things. So she might like design a set, and then the builders would build it. But you know, she was right in there as well, painting things and putting yeah. things together. Later in her career, she actually transitioned into um, long distance learning. So so public television, there's all the stuff we watch when we watch Nova or whatever other programs we all like. But public television often has multiple channels and particularly, so this would be more in the 80s when she worked there, 
and again, pre-internet, right? So this was right. the original distance learning. There would be multiple channels that WVIC and they would broadcast educational programming. And then there would also be supporting materials. So teachers could have, they could have the classroom piece, there would be the broadcast piece and they would put it together. So it would be a more holistic, vibrant lesson for kids. And it was a way to, you know, get more and new and, and uh, you know, exciting materials into the hands of teachers and into the hands of kids. And so my mother was um, part of both the outreach to the schools to help the teachers, you know, learn how to use these programs and, and the curricula, and then also helping develop that curricula within within the WVIC context. Yeah, I mean, the, both of those jobs, I would never have known that they existed, and they sound like great yeah. jobs. It was amazing, and, and well, it was amazing too, just to again be surrounded by that as a kid, right? Because, for example. It's a rainy Saturday and you're seven years old and you say, Mom, I'm bored. Our mother's answer was usually, well, go down in the basement to the make it drawers and pull something out. So there is literally this little, I think it was made out of cardboard, like probably got it at Kmart or something. It's like a folded together little set of drawers, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not fancy, but there's just all kinds of cool, creative, artistic raw materials, essentially, you know pastels and feathers and plaster of Paris and a thousand and so she had she had her art, art supplies the as children we weren't allowed to touch mother's art supplies because right. you know she had the nice brushes and professional stuff but um but you know we would we would do plaster casting of raccoon tracks in the mud um or we would you know we would do at Halloween we would make our own paper mache masks and you know, make these wild monster masks, and that was our, you know, part of our Halloween costume. Yeah. So, so there were all these sort of just creative, normal aspects of our childhood that, you know, as my I have two brothers, and you know, obviously now that we're grown, we, we really appreciate what all that was like. But I think for all of us, it just wanted to imbued a real love of aesthetics and that being part of day to day life. But also, it, it just you know, you can make things, Yeah, you can do things, you know, that, that experimental mindset, um, I, I think with, without, and I, don't, and I don't know that they were, either my parents were trying to explicitly imbue that in us, but I think it's just how they were and therefore how we are. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're getting sort of this on the one side, you're seeing a little bit how businesses run, right? Your dad's. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and they, and my grandparents were really good at, exposing us to that. And I remember my older brother, he actually, he's the most entrepreneurial of the family. And he started his own business when I think he was, gosh, I think he was like eight or nine years old and uh, selling plants by the roadside. And actually the sheriff stopped by one day and asked him if he had a vendor's license. Of course, right. And, yeah. and, and of course my brother's like, no, sir, I, I don't, I don't. And he's like, well, you need one. He went and got a vendor's license, right? He, he did. Um, he did. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and I remember too, my grandmother wrote him a letter of advice on running a business that he has to this day, of course. And, you know, it's fabulous advice, fundamentals, pay attention to your customer, understand your expenses, work hard, be honest. I mean, you know, fundamentals, but you know, you could, you could read that today and they're still, yeah. do you good things. I mean, they're Absolutely. fundamental for a reason, right? And it's because they're they're necessary. Exactly. Yeah. Just for yep. one more thing on your mother, but so she had her own supplies, as you said. Was she also like you know painting mm -hmm. on her own or creating 
sculpture as an art on her own. Yeah, so she did some when she was younger, um, you know, as she's a, a, a mother and working and everything else. There wasn't as much time for that. Yeah. However, it, it ended up showing up in day-to-day -day life in a whole bunch of other ways. Like, you know, I remember, for example, when I was, um, when I was in elementary school and we had the talent show at Hopkins Elementary and my mother was part of the PTA and she said, well, we should make T-shirts. Again, remember, this is in the 70s, right? Today, of course, it's easy to do. Yeah. And everybody's like, what do you mean we should make T-shirts? And she's like, oh, we'll just do a silk screen. I can do it, no problem. And then she got everybody involved because, you know, she taught, she would, she designed a silk screen and she taught us all how to do the silk screening of the shirts. Uh -huh. But we all, we all had like designed silk screen T-shirts for this, this talent show. All that kind of thing. Yeah, I love that. That because um, when you're a kid like that, especially back then, it, it's like t-shirts come from a company. You, you don't yeah. make your own t-shirt. That's make kind them. of amazing, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So, that, so uh, I'm thinking some kind of college is coming up for you, and mm. how did you? Were you already thinking? Well, okay, I want to get into some sort of science. Yeah, I, I was. Um, I just, I was just really drawn to biology. I remember. I remember sometime when I was like, I don't know, middle school or something, reading something about bioluminescence and thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to study bioluminescence. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize that, you know, that, that a lot of that was already figured out. But but I did love science. And my high school was actually an excellent uh, public high school. And there were a couple of the biology teachers there who just kind of pushed an extra mile. And they created this set of rather specialized advanced biology classes that you could take as a senior. And so mostly sort of physiologically oriented, you know, the renal system, the nervous system, things like that. Mm -hmm. But there's also one on um, microbiology and there's one on genetics. And, you know, again, this is the mid eighties. So it is going back a ways. Uh, Mr. Korchak and Mr. Kovetta. And, you know, they just kind of invented these classes out of their own initiative, but being able to be taken a level deeper into the biological sciences was for me just very inspiring and so i knew i wanted to i knew i wanted to go that direction generally but i also wanted to go to a school that broadly had you know good general liberal arts uh, opportunities mm -hmm. and, and was a kind of bigger vibrant campus my, my high school was big so i'm like well college should be bigger and and then beyond that um you know, Ohio has some great schools, but I felt like you're supposed to go away right. to college. Right. So through all of that, I kind of narrowed it down to a handful that I applied to and uh, ended up at, at Cornell, which was totally amazing. I, I remember visiting the campus and um, just falling in love with it. What, so was that your top school going in or did you apply to a lot of schools? I, I can't remember. I think I applied to three or four um, it, you know, the process was so different than it is today because yeah. there was no common application. So, you know, every application was a good four or five essays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. so this, this, these two teachers you had, um, mm. you know, you're saying that he's sort of the genetics guy. He said, well, I want to do a course on genetics for my high school kids. Cause that, I don't think that was not, I mean, that wasn't on the curriculum when I was in high school. No. Know. Yeah. It was unusual. It was unusual. I mean, it's just the initiative of those teachers. And I mean, I think it, it speaks well of the whole school yeah. um i remember the um the principal peggy hanrahan was incredibly well respected and it, it was a good school system right i mean it was you know just a 
sort of straight middle class um, uh, community. It wasn't a particularly wealthy community at all, but um, it was. It's interesting. Part of it was that, and I know this partly because my mother was very involved in educational matters, of course. And the, in the, I think it was in the early to mid '60s, a lot of these communities were growing, and they needed more capacity at the high school. So they're kind of outgrowing their existing high schools. And the town next door chose to make two smaller high schools. So each graduating class of like, you know, call it 300 students. But Mentor chose to make one big high school. So my graduating class was about 700 kids. Oh, wow. And that was like, that was small. That was a small class. So sometimes they went up to 900 or so. So it's, it's a big school. You know, obviously, it's a, it's a, you know, some people say, well, didn't you feel lost? And I'm like, well, no, you find your niche, but it's certainly a different experience than, than a smaller, more intimate school. So, yeah. I mean, so there were obviously people that you did not know in your high school and even your class, I'm sure. Class. Right. Yeah. So when you, when you go to Cornell, did you, did it meet your expectations? I mean, you fell in love with it. Did it live yeah. up to it? Yeah. yeah. It was amazing. I mean, even beyond, I think what I had anticipated and it, it's funny because um, I mean, I had, I had in mind that I was going to, study science, biology, probably focus on genetics, and then go on and get a PhD and go into academic research. That was my path. Yeah. Super, super excited about it. And, you know, part of my financial aid package was some work study funding. And I'm like, okay, I need a job. And let's get a job in a lab. You know, why not? Let's get in that environment and start to see what it's like. Um, so I, I got a job as a lab assistant in the plant disease diagnostic laboratory. Mm -hmm. We were plant doctors. Basically, we would get, uh, so Cornell's part of the cooperative extension of New York State, and we would get disease plan samples from anywhere around the state, anybody that wanted to send it in through the cooperative extension. And then we would diagnose what was wrong with it, send them a letter back. So uh, wonderful way to kind of like get exposed to a lot of stuff. And it was in the plant pathology department. So lab across the hall, there were world experts in viral diseases of corn. Oh, wow. Upstairs, bacterial diseases of, of crab apple and so on and so forth. Um, and I, I spent the summer there. I worked full-time during the summer, all that kind of stuff. But through that, I also kind of realized what it is actually like to do research as a career, particularly through the summer I was there when you was doing it full-time. And I realized, ah, actually, maybe that's not quite the right thing for me. And specifically, the the you know diving deep in what felt to me more narrowly in one particular area, which is of course the hallmark of of science. Right. Um, whereas I I realized I was more interested in how things interconnect. So I I applied to this program, that's just a small program at Cornell called the College Scholar Program, and it's basically if you think that your intellectual interests don't fit any of the other bajillion majors you could possibly have at Cornell because Cornell's a big place and there's a lot of different things you can major in. But if none of those satisfy you, you can make up your own. And so I applied and I basically was like, look, I'm interested in the, I think my initial uh, approach was I want to do scientific filmmaking. And I'm interest, interested in the intersection of science and film. I'm thinking like Nova, right? Who doesn't want to make Nova films, right? Yeah. And uh, and so they they accepted me. But the thing is, once you're in the program, you don't have to stick with that original idea. 
And I took filmmaking. I realized that I wasn't very good at it, and I didn't love filmmaking. But so, uh, so the the idea yeah. then is that you would say, "I want to, I want to make scientific films," and they would say, "Well, okay, we mm. have a film department, and we have science courses, yep. and we can sort of put together, string together curriculum from these different areas of the school, and that will be your education." Like that? No, it was up to me. It was up to me to string it together. Oh, so one fair. thing is, once you're in the program. There's two things. In order you have you have absolutely no requirements in order to graduate except a certain total number of credits and a senior thesis. You don't have to have a declared major of any kind. You don't have like a distribution or a humanities or a language. None of those requirements, they all go away. And it's up to you to decide what you're taking every semester and to make it add up to something meaningful for you. I, I have I feel like <laughs> Everybody would probably apply to this program. There, there must be. I mean, the freedom sounds incredible. Well, and the thing is, it's it's not for everybody, right? I mean, I think some people did fantastically with with the majors that they picked, and you know, diving deeply into that area where they had passion and interest. And you know, majors are can provide great structure yeah. as well. I, I will say that to me, the so what I ended up doing, I did, I did actually, I took a ton of science and I essentially completed a biology major anyway. But, um, but I was took a lot of things. I took some education courses. I took some law courses. I took some finance courses. I took, uh, I did take filmmaking courses. And through all of that, I was trying to look at what's the intersection between science and something else, and I wasn't quite sure what that was going to be. By the time I was a senior, I had really kind of honed in on this biotech industry looks fascinating. Wow, you can act, this is this is where medicines come from. Mm -hmm. And they're like, it's not just the Mercs of the world, but there are little companies that do this stuff. And, you know, I was like, how do I get into that? So then, yep. but you, so you, what you decided upon was I'm going to go to this intersection of science and business, really. I mean, yeah. That's what biotech is. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was, it's interesting because my, my undergraduate path was, there was a bit of, you know, trial and error exploration. I think the key was that every semester when everybody else is thinking, what do I have to take you know, to pick the courses for the next semester? I wasn't thinking that I was thinking, what do I want to take? And it was a fundamentally different mindset. And I really had to justify to myself why that course and not this other one. Because when, when you say, what do I get to take? It, 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 everything looks interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you have to really think about what direction you're going and what you've already learned, you know, what, where does that point you? So, yeah. So by the time I graduated, I graduated in 1990, which was not the best economy. Right. Um, and, you know, there's also, as, as most people know, there's very few kinds, kinds of companies that come to recruit on campus. It's just, you know, most of the jobs out there aren't, the kinds where they come to recruit on campus. So I graduated unemployed, yay. And uh, I'm like, how do I get into biotech? What I eventually figured out, again, remember this pre-internet, um, was that biotech primarily existed in San Francisco and Boston. Right. Nobody's gonna hire a new college graduate long distance, right. especially in that economy. And I needed to just be present and show up in one of those cities and be there if I wanted to get into the industry. So I ended up, I had one friend from high school who was living in Boston. So I, I moved to Boston with whatever I could fit in my, you know, 12 year old car. Mm -hmm. And 
I got my first job through a want ad in the Boston Globe. I was going to ask about this. I mean, e even being in Boston and, yeah. and the industry being as young and smaller as it was then, like, yeah. I don't know how you crack the industry just rolling out of college with a it's, bio degree. Well, it's, it's, I will tell you too, my first position was as an administrative assistant. And I, it was a little hard for me to realize that that was where I needed to start yeah. because, you know, graduate, we have grand plans yeah. of how we're going to launch into the world. Um, I will say first and foremost, I, you know, respect everybody who does that job. It's a hard job. Yeah. But, um, but what was more important was that, you know, I was in the right environment, right? I was, I was learning the jargon. I was reading a bio world existed then you, you read the, trade press yeah. and you start to hear about this company and you know, literally I was learning things like what's a clinical trial you don't learn back in that time you didn't learn that in college yeah. these days I'm sure they have how biotech works is like a class yeah. but you know learning all some very fundamental basics and you know paying the rent paying off my student loans like I'm in the right environment and 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 the company that I was with wasn't wasn't a terribly strong company so that was you know I also learned a little bit about how do you assess what's a strong organization. But it also meant that I was around when about a year later, a position opened up at Alkermes. Oh, so who, who was the other company? Uh, you've never heard of them. They're called Imreg. No, I haven't. You're right. Just one, one, of, one of thousands of little companies that just didn't quite go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, it, it, it's not an uncommon tale, right? Yeah. But the thing was that, you know, I was actually, I was here and I was paying the rent when this position opened up at Alkermes. So, you know, being in the right environment so that you can be there when the opportunity happens, that's part of it, right? And the, and Alchemy's also came through a want ad. Um, but Alchemy's at the time was still private. It was about, I don't know, 25 employees maybe. I mean, Richard, Rich Richard Cross, yeah, right. See, he was he running He just it. joined about a, a month before he had just joined as CEO. So he was new to the organization as well. And I was hired, Carol Gloff hired me as a regulatory affairs assistant, which is essentially, you know, to put together the IND, I, I, man, she had courage to hire me to do that because I, I was not a regulatory affairs expert. But my senior thesis in college was about the development of regulation of recombinant DNA technology. There you go. It was all about Asilomar and how that led to the NIH recombinant DNA advisory committee, etc. I remember reading the transcripts of the city of Cambridge city council meetings where they debated this and how Cambridge had put together a, a diverse committee of, of, you know, cause remember Cambridge is this not such a big city yeah. and on either end of it, it's got like two of the pioneers between Harvard and MIT of this technology. And they're like, it's sort of the ultimate town gown challenge of you're doing what in my backyard. Yeah. And, I mean, to this day, if you want to do anything with recombinant DNA in Cambridge, you need a city permit. Now, these days, it's obviously quite a, quite straightforward, but it stems from those early days when you know people were worried about the technology. Um, and I joke that you know you go to Cambridge City Hall, and that's where you get your parking permit and your dog permit and your recombinant DNA permit, and you know. Uh, yeah, but I, mean, I also thought, I mean, there was a lot of fear around it back then, honestly, right? I mean, I. And, very, very understandable. Fear. Yeah. It was a brand new technology. You could imagine good and bad uses. 
tons of analogies to CRISPR, tons yeah, of analogies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the fascinating things about what Cambridge did and one of the reasons it was, I think, I think successful is, is really the right characterization was that basically the city said, right, we're going to put together a committee of people from diverse backgrounds, you know, not a bunch of scientists, but, and we're going to ask them to look at this. I think what was important about that was number one, you know, obviously they, they had to get up to speed and understand the technology, which they did. Mm-hmm. So one is, it's possible to get up to speed and understand it, right? It's not, that's not an insurmountable thing. So people can absolutely understand these kinds of technologies. And yeah, they brought religious perspectives and community perspectives and business perspectives and all these different perspectives. And they were able to have a robust dialogue and come to a view about what would be constructive for Cambridge. And it worked, you know, the system worked. Yeah, work. That's the thing. Yeah. They, they put, they did put a permitting system in place and it, and frankly, it did not stifle the science. It provided a framework and let it flourish. That's like, there's two things. One, I, this might be, this kind of like folklore at this point, but the rumor was that Amgen was, was placed in thousand Oaks. Um, so that in case, if, if there was some sort of breach in the lab that whatever they were creating would blow out to sea. I mean, that's the rumor, right? That's, yeah. that's how long ago. And they were like, we don't know yeah. what this company's doing. Um, yeah. But so I, from there you went to Biogen. Is that right? No, I actually went from there to Highland Capital Partners. I worked in venture capital oh, right. for a couple right, of right. years. And that was, it was interesting because um, I hadn't been looking for it. And, and Alchemy's was an amazing experience. It was you know, the very heady days of the 91, 92 IPO market, the company went public, yeah. they did a follow on. Mike Glendina, CFO, who was excellent. Rich was excellent. It was a great team. It was, it was, it was an exciting company and an exciting time to be there. Um, I got a call from a headhunter. So I was far enough in my career that, that I, you know, somehow a headhunter found me. I think it was a former college friend of mine she called and and about this position and and Michelle was saying Michelle wasn't interested but remembered it sounded like something I did so somehow they tracked me down and this is like definitely before LinkedIn and all these other other things so she tracks me down and it's for an analyst position at a venture capital firm I didn't really know much about venture other than you know, they they invest in biotech but I really I really didn't know much about yeah. it but I did think you know it might be helpful in the long run to understand the capital side of the equation. And, you know, no downside to having a conversation. It it ended up being a really uh, wonderful experience, but a good fit because what they were looking for, and Bob Higgins is the partner that that I worked for, he wanted somebody who was not fresh out of college, had a, you know, few miles on the road at least, Mm -hmm. Um, but could you, you know, due diligence and keep track of portfolio company stuff and all the kinds of stuff an analyst would do at a venture capital firm. And so I joined there in 93. It's been a couple of years there. Really fundamentally important for me long-term for my career because understanding how an investor thinks and why, how funds are structured and why, what the dynamics of a fund structure are and how that impacts the companies they invest in. Yeah. What what does no sound like? No takes a lot of different forms. Rarely does it take the form of no, but understand how to hear when it's yes and when it's no. Uh, how are boards structured? 
How do boards work? Boards are a mystery for most people until they're sitting in a boardroom for the first time. Mm -hmm. And boards are a very different kind of organizational structure than the operational teams that you're part of if you're, if you're an employee of a company. So a lot of things that I got exposure to that particularly later when, when I became CEO of Avala and then beyond that really gave me some context for thinking about the role of being a CEO, the role of being a board member, how to understand what's going on for the investors that you have or the investors that you're trying to attract. So some really fundamental lessons that, that stood me in good stead long term. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, that's it's interesting what you just said is this headhunter came to the company. They sort of, so well, they were just referred it to you and you thought, you know, this might be useful in the long run, which suggests that you had... A, a long view for yourself and was it one day I would like to run a company? You know, I think that was always there in my head at some level and, and that may be also where kind of coming back to how I grew up, that felt like a very reasonable and normal thing to consider doing because yeah. actually both my grandfathers had done that. My my mom's dad had passed when I was a baby, but he he ran his own business as well. Um, it It did seem like a very normal kind of thing to consider doing. And I think where, you know, where it really stemmed from is that I like building things. Yeah. And, you know, not not just running them. And that's important too. And some people are amazing at like totally the trains always run on time. There's there's a beauty to people who are are excellent at that. Um that's that's probably not my top strength. I'm good at building things and I like building things and both you know physically as as well as intellectually. And Building a company seemed like a really normal thing to think about doing. I will say too, just to add one more layer to the, you know, what's around you as a kid is is what's normal. So WVIZ, I mentioned where my mother works. Mm-hmm. That the the CEO of WVIZ was a woman named Betty Cope, and she had founded WAV. She started that television station back in the I guess the late fifties, which is you know those were the high tech startups of the 50s right, right? a television station right. not just high tech but also from a business model like what's the business model 
And so Betty Cope, yes, my mother's boss, but also they, they had become good friends over the years. And so Betty Cope is one of these people in my life who's like, yeah, of course a woman can be a CEO yeah. and of something complicated and of something innovative. And, you know, it just, it is very much in my range of normal. Yeah. I mean, that's so, those role models are so key. If you can see it yeah. when you're young, then you can envision for yourself. If you don't see it, it's hard to kind of it's put harder. yourself there. Yeah. 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 So that, yeah. along those lines, if you're working in this VC now, and now you're seeing how companies are built, you're seeing how startups are funded. So from Highland, I went to Biogen, yeah. and that was in 19, late 1995. A couple of things were going through my mind. So I'd been around the industry long enough at that point that I had, I had some knowledge of the industry, right? Um, but still a lot to learn. And I thought, you know, venture, it's been great, but... I actually think I'm an operating company person. I just think that's, you know, I, I didn't really have that desire to kind of make investing be my career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was surrounded by really great people. Bob was an amazing kind of mentor and educator about that, about that business. But, you know, you, at some point you figure out like, hey, I know where I fit in the world. And where I fit in the world, I'm like, I think I'm an operating company person. And I said, okay, what I really want to do is, have people around me I can learn from because I got a lot more to learn, but I don't want to be in a place that's so big. I'm in like a little cog in a very narrowly defined company. So I think big pharma felt too big for mm -hmm. me. And I said, I also think someplace that one has is, is in charge of its own destiny, right? So this was a time period when you had the, the kind of emerging companies of Amgen, Biogen, Genetics Institute. Um, you know, there was a handful of them. But you had ones like Genetics Institute was majority owned by American Home Products. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm not sure they really control their own destiny. Right. So it, the, the two companies that really emerged the most from that, that thinking were Amgen and Biogen. And, and I did talk to both of them. Um, the thing with Biogen, though, was that it was right on the cusp of launching its first product, Avanex. And I thought, you know it's going to be amazing to be part of a company when it goes to that one-time transition. It only does it once from R&D to R&D plus commercial. Yeah. I said to be there at a time when all that's happening, that would be amazing. And so I joined actually a group that um, John Marganori was putting together at the time to do business development and uh, program management kinds of roles. And then over the next, I think I was there eight, plus years. I think I think I had, you know, seven different jobs and five different bosses or five and seven, something like that. But it was a time of fantastic growth. Mm -hmm. And when you are in a growing organization, it, it puts a lot of opportunities in front of you. So while I was there, I, you know, I did a bunch of deals. So I really learned how to do business development there. I spent a couple of years based out of the European office, uh, living in living in Paris, which was awesome. Wow, yeah. <laughs> but also, but but doing you know working with a lot of different biotech companies in Europe broadly, because uh, I was doing business development there, so really got to know the European biotech community much better. I spent a year doing the corporate strategic long range plan. So how do you put all those pieces together? Um, and I spent a couple years in commercial because I at some point I'm like you know. I feel like I should know where revenue comes from. Uh, so I worked for Paul Clancy and um, and Rob Perez. So yeah, it was great. Experience. I mean, but the, uh, the the thing you just said now too, like I should figure out where revenue comes from. I mean, that that is 
again, you mm -hmm. actively trying to collect all parts that are required to run yeah. a company. Yeah. I mean, not everybody would do that. I don't think some it, people go that oh, my job's pretty good. And I'm, you know, but you were like actively trying yeah. to collect the information. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, we always, we're all like, or at least I think, you know, if you're learning, it's always more fun. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, to do that, you, you're going to have to sometimes put yourselves in positions that are where you feel uncomfortable and in, in, in over your head. So then, I mean, at some point you leave there and you go to add nexus. How does that happen? Yeah. Well, it, you know, I actually, it was really a, a bit of self-reflection that um, the company had gone through the merger with IDEC mm -hmm. and, and about a year post IDEC, you know, it, it had gotten quite a bit bigger. And I'd always imagine myself going back to, and this is where, you know, your point was, I, was I thinking of, of um, running a company someday? I think it was always in my head, but you know, getting back to a smaller company environment where you're really building something was always in my mind as well. And, you know, Biogenic felt like a big company to me. And I said, you know, I think I'm ready to, to get back to a small environment and I've accumulated a lot more skills. I think I could really help build it in a way that when I was just coming out of Highland, I, I didn't have enough operational, I didn't have as much operational skills I thought I needed to really be, really make an impact at a small company. Yeah. But eight years later, I, I knew a lot. Yeah. And, and so I said, okay, I think it's time. What I did do though, and, and I've done this a few times now, is I, I thought, you know, life is important too. There's more to life than, than just career. Um, and so I, I actually took some time off because the other thing I was, I was, I didn't know quite what small company I wanted to go to, although I had a number of relationships and so ways to kind of investigate. But this was 2004 and there was a lot emerging in China and India with regard to biotech and I was curious as to what was really going on, not just what you read, but what was really going on. And so I figured out a person who's a friend of mine who was over there and it basically finagled a way to, to spend some time in India, um, hanging out with some different biotech people and doing a little bit of pro bono consulting for a small academic institution there just to try to get a feel for what was going on in biotech in India and is that a direction I wanted to go. Um, ultimately, what I, what I realized from that was that that was more, it was, it was really um, developing as a CRO industry. Mm -hmm. yeah. And while that, that, that can be a great business and a great industry, you know, I really wanted to, I wanted to be in translation of exciting new science. Yeah. I'd spent a lot of time with you know those kinds of programs and scientists at Biogen, and I loved that. So, you know, scary because it's so much unknown, but that new science transitioning into the clinic, into really being a medicine that that was the journey I wanted to be on, and that gave me a lot of focus when I when I got back here as to what kind of company was going to be the right fit for me. I mean, so when I'm sort of looking at what happens for your career at, at Nexus happens where you join, you join as a vice president, that company yep. is eventually bought by uh, Bristol Myers for I think like yep. 430 million or something. So that's a great exit, right? So you're like, okay, you just saw that yep. happen. And then I think your next, your next yep. company is Avila. So yes. there, there yes. you're a CEO. You brought in as a CEO, and I want to talk about that in a second. But also, what happens is that that's bought yeah. by Celgene for yeah. you know, three fifty, I think, up front, and a total of like nine hundred twenty-five of everything pays out. 
So again, like now, yes. now you've all these things that you've learned are coming together. You understand, you see how the venture capital money goes in, yep. it comes back out, right? Here's you've had two exits. And then at a talk, eventually yeah. you have another exit with an IPO, right? Yeah. And that's kind of like those three, it's really good track record. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, um, you, I think if you go into any, any company or role thinking about that, you, you set yourself up to fail. I mean, I went into each one of those companies because, you know, first and foremost, I fell in love with the science and I thought it was really cool. Yeah. You know, there's just some moment where you're like, oh, that's cool. Number one. Number two, there are good people around the table. Yeah. You know, in the company, investors, et cetera, just high quality, experienced, talented, committed people. And then you, you dive in and you, you try to make that vision real. And, and, and if, if you're focused on exit, you one, you're going to miss opportunities. Um, but also the thing is you, there's so much that's outside of your control. You don't control whether somebody approaches you about acquisition. You don't control the capital markets. You may need to react. Well, you will need to react to those things. But if you really want to make those medicines and the way you want to make those medicines is to create a new company to do that because you feel like that's the most effective way to make those medicines, then how do you put all these puzzle pieces together to, to achieve that goal? Now, along the way, particularly with regard to acquisition, because I, I would always get, I would often get asked the question at Avila, you know, are you looking to be acquired or are you building for the long term? Which is sort of a loaded question. Right. And I struggled with it for the longest time because it felt like the wrong question. And I understood where it was coming from, but I'm like, that's not the right question. So at one point I was forced to really sit down and think about like, what, why do I think it's the wrong question? What is it that I think about it? And ultimately what I came to is this, you need to build for the long term. That is the only strategy along that path of building value. Somebody may approach you and say, Hey, we would love for you to be part of us. And then you're going to be forced to answer the question, is that a better way to achieve that, that value and, and make those medicines and reach that goal? But the only way you're going to be able to even consider that question is if you know what it looks like to go along yourself. Now, there may be pressures that, that push you one way or the other, where are your investors, what's the market, all those things are going to influence ultimately the decision. But acquisitions, I don't think acquisition is really a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I think I find this fascinating, right? I, I can't. So when you said, you know, I don't ever think about the exit. Uh, I was so surprised because I assumed that every time um, you, a, a venture capitalist puts money in a company, they are telling you over and over and over that they need to that they need that exit, right? And well, it's not quite. I mean, it's certainly their thing, but that is their job, right? Their job is to return capital to their limited partners. And of course they bring it up. And of course the, the topic comes up and I, I don't, you know, I don't ignore it. Be, being a responsible steward of capital is incredibly, incredibly important part of a CEO's yeah. job. But they're, they're, it's sort of like stepping stones across a river, right? Today at Editas, there's a different set of investors. It's not the venture investors. But you have to be a responsible steward of the current investors as well. And you know, there's you go from maybe seed investing to venture to mezzanine to IPO. That the people that invest in IPOs are very different than the people that invest when you know Moderna did their offering right. the other right. week. Those are not the same 
you know, some of them will be the same, but a lot of them will be different. So there are these different pools of capital along the way. And at every step, you need to earn your right, literally, to access that new pool. And part of the way you earn your right is you take care of the investors that came before you, but you also have to build a company that is a good investment for that next pool of capital. So that that's building for the long term. Being a responsible steward of capital is extremely important. But to me, that's a different framing than exit because the VCs might be exiting. I wasn't. That's exiting. yeah. That's a great point, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because an exit isn't the end of the company. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, but let me nope. ask this in a hypothetical sort of way. Let's just pretend that um, at Avila, the offer comes in and it's 350 up front, and it looks like for sure a couple of those milestones are going to be easy to hit. So there's like a 10x return for the investors. I'm, I'm making this up, of course, but you know, if you were to say we're not doing that merger, would there have been massive pushback yeah. against that? Well, so this is where it's funny because um, that there was. Um, it was at Nexus, not Avila, but very similar context. That they did an HBS case on it, and um, you know they, the way they frame these at HBS cases, they're you know like the CEO puts the phone down and they kind of stage this little scene, yeah. and 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 the, the you know they set up the whole context and everything. And at the end, they they have the class debate the question about do you sell or not, and so the class is debating this whole like well the CEO this and the CEO that and that 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 that, and then you know then. I remember because they, I, I was, you know, they have a guest who's part of the company come and, and Vicky Sato is teaching the class at the time. And, and you know, she invites us down and, and say, so, you know, so what happened? And I'm like, all right, I need everybody to think for a moment about who makes this decision. And there was silence. And I said, it's not a trick question, guys. I mean, this is a very basic corporate governance question. Who makes the decision? Eventually, somebody comes up with board of directors. I'm like, right. Like, who's on the board of directors? Right. You know? So, look, there are absolutely these realities. At Avila, it wasn't my personal decision one way or the other. And certainly when, um, you know, I still remember the moment when uh, George Golombeski offered me the term sheet after dinner in New York. And, you know, the moment I saw that number, I'm like, uh, and it was a lower number than what we had yeah. at, but, but I knew what direction this was going to go. But that's what I mean by, you know, I said earlier, like on your way to building value, sometimes these things happen, but not just to small companies, right? Big companies get yeah, fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big companies get fired all the time, right? You know, think about the, the years that, um, you know, Carl Icahn is trying to force Fiage to get yeah. acquired or, you know, when Pfizer acquires Warner Lambert or, I mean, for example, look at Sanofi, is a combination of Herx, Marion, Roussel, Rome, Polonc, Roar. And I'm sure there's a bunch of others beyond that. Glaxo, SmithKline, Glaxo, SmithKline, SmithKline, Beach, and SmithKline, Beckman, da, 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 da. Like, large companies face this stuff all the time. And you just have to say, you know, what what is the right choice for all the stakeholders? And one of the, the wonderful parts about something like the situation with Celgene was we've been talking to them for quite a while about a, a potential business development collaboration and they basically are like look if you don't want to do acquisition we'd still like to do the collaboration we knew them well and so you could say is this a good home for the people and the technology and will it continue to go forward we we felt good about answering that question it's not just about the ROI. yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah maybe the question should have been 
you get an offer and you know you go into the board meeting and three of your board members are leaders of your last three rounds or something and you go okay now this is going to be i don't know i have to assume that they're contentious at some point they must be you know honestly but this is where i think it, it depends a great deal on how that board has been developed and cultivated over time right in the moment yes you'll get all these different reactions but the quality of that conversation, the candor of it, the how much people are listening to each other, it's not because of what's happening in that moment. It's happening. It's because of what's happened over the last one, two, three, four, five yeah. years. And so, you know, you, you can't you can't build a culture in the moment of either crisis or or opportunity or event. You know, it'd be same thing. Like, if what if you had bad clinical data, or what if there were a global pandemic, or you know, these these kinds of significant events, let's just call them significant events, do happen. And it's both for the board, board culture as well as the company culture. This is, this is where your culture shows up. You, you can't mold your culture in the moment, but your culture will show up positively or negatively when these significant events occur. And this is why you, you need to be working on culture all the time so that working at it's a normal thing to do. And then you know, then it, then it's there to lean on when you yeah. need it, and that that is absolutely what what happened at Avila was that, you know, we it was a wonderful place, great board members and investors, great organization overall, and yeah, we leaned on each other quite a lot in those moments, and yeah, surely there's some contentious conversations, but it was never disrespectful. It was always candid, and you know, it was contentious just because it's it's. The big deal it's emotional yeah. you know it's all of a sudden we're going a new direction and it just it, that's just hard so i i, I want to ask about editas too so you, you left editas about a year ago yeah. i guess march in 2019 yeah and yeah. um i mean so i have no idea what happened but the media the word abrupt happened in the media quite often after that you left abruptly she left abruptly whatever the cmo had left the c the cfo had left and it looked like from the outside, there's some sort of exodus from this really high-profile CRISPR company. I mean, was any of that accurate? What what happened there? Well, you know, I think obviously you know, folks like to try to uh, speculate, read between lines, whatever. I mean, honestly, it was, it was three quite separate things that that happened to come at a, a similar moment in time. Um, you know, companies do go through these transitions of leadership because there can be sort of phases or eras or chapters of, of company yeah. building. Um, and I think in some respects, that's a little bit more maybe what you saw. And, and it was frankly kind of, I would say arbitrary. It was, um, it, 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 there wasn't any specific reason those things happened in a, in a similar time frame. They just happened to. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that, that I felt very strongly about was I would never want to leave a company unless it was in strong shape. And, from the perspective of the science and the, the leaders that were continuing there and and the capital, always important for a biotech company. You know, we had a long runway, a very strong um, and high quality list of, of investors. Um, and so the company was very healthy. And I think that's, that's essential because you want, uh, anytime there's transitions, um, you know, there, there, there's a little time to kind of get into that, that new gear and that new chapter of the yeah. company. And uh, so you always want to be leaving leaving it healthy uh, to hand into the hands of, of a new leader. I mean, as you said, 
there are people who will make the trains run on time and there are people who want to build companies and you'd been there five years. Yeah, felt like a thousand, but sure, <laughs> five years. <laughs> um, I, you know, there's there's something about crisper years are different yeah, from other years, yeah. but no, it was, it was an absolutely fabulous experience, and I think, um, you know, it's a technology that, that literally is a once a generation yeah, technology. Yeah. It, it just it just is, and I think you know we're we're still in a good way at the tip of the iceberg of of all of the the things that will come from. The technology fundamentally obviously is being used in a million different ways in basic research laboratories and there's new creative variations and versions and applications coming out every day fundamentally transformative technology to biological science writ large in a way that you know for common in dna and pcr or maybe the other two that and maybe you know anyway, it's just there's very few technologies that that yeah. are that um and it comes with this additional layer, certainly as we're building Editas, of what's the right way to engage with right. the public. Because this is not just, you know, most most biotech science, it, it doesn't have these big social implications. The ethical, existing ethical framework of how to do clinical trials and how to do research and all that, it just fits and you don't have to think about new rules because the, the existing rules are appropriate. Um, with CRISPR, that's still true, but and then there was this other gear that that genuinely required, uh, demanded finding the right way to engage. Even though we were a tiny little new company, we needed to operate in this sphere that most young biotechs never have to operate in. Apparently. Yeah, you know, a lot of startups, you can sort of, well, depending on uh, what investors are behind the company, but a startup will start and it'll be in stealth mode for a little bit and then have a series A and you'll have some sort of time to figure yourself out maybe. But this wasn't the case yeah. with crystal companies. Everybody yeah. knew who the first few were and everybody's eyes were on it. And, mm -hmm. and uh, it's quite a thing. Yeah, it was quite a thing. Yeah, no, it was, it, it was, it was pretty spectacular. I will say probably the most exciting part was just so many times when you know, you'd see a new piece of data and you'd realize nobody in the world's oh, ever yeah. done this before. Oh yeah. my God. You know, and sometimes it was positive data and sometimes it was negative data. And you're like, okay, okay, okay. God yeah. solve this one. You know, cause it was just, it was just so new. There's a lot of stuff to figure out. And, you know, I, I a lot of times I kind of I said to the scientists, like, look, l let me be your heat shield. Just you figure out the science. I will talk to the media give you time and time and money and, you know, you know, talk to the external world to figure it out. Cause you yeah, just got to get like, it right. You know, they see the data and they think yeah. there's going to be ripples from this, right? I mean, this isn't just something that's happening in the yeah, company. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there were, there were a lot of instances. One of the interesting things too, is that there were also a number of instances where an academic would publish some paper that would say, Oh, there's this huge yeah. issue with CRISPR of whatever nature. There's, there's a few of these. And, you know, so when those, and, and oftentimes we kind of knew they were coming because either somebody gave us a head up, heads up or, you know, we happened to be already talking to the investigator or whatever. So they most, I don't think any of them were ever surprises, but, um, but when they actually came out, you know, you needed to be able to respond and, you know, thoughtfully and, and, you know, a lot of these are basic research papers that are like making New York Times articles, which that doesn't happen very yep. often. I think, I think there's a, like two things I want to ask you, and then I will let you go. But 
The first one is it's very, very rare to find somebody who is in the management suite who does not have an MBA or a PhD. Very rare in the industry. Almost yeah. as if it's an impediment, honestly. I mean, like you have to go get I had one yeah. um one person who's sort of transitioning from the business world over to uh he wanted to run a company and they said if you don't have a PhD, no one's really gonna think you're serious, right? And so I, I think my question is, when you look back at the career that you've had, where you honestly started as an administrative assistant, do you think someone could, could follow yeah. that path today and, and still make it? You think yes. they could, or has the industry changed sure. so much that it's impossible? Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think it's impossible. I think, look, I, I think that, um, you know, for, for every rule, there are exceptions. But, but more importantly, it's, you know, I did consider going to graduate school a couple different points. And. Uh, you know, at one point I definitely thought I would get an MBA or at one point I thought about going to medical school because I'm like, oh God, you know, it'd be wonderful to know yeah. all that stuff. Um, and the, the practical reality was I was always just so engaged with what I was doing at the moment. It's like, well, I, I just, I can't stop doing this right now because I, I, it's too much fun and I like it too much. And, you know, maybe a little bit later. And then you, I think you do reach a point in life um, where you're like, yeah, I probably graduate school doesn't make sense for me anymore. You know, you're never done learning, uh, and and I think particularly in the world of biotech, I mean, I should show you the stack of papers that's on my desk literally right now. I'm looking at them like I haven't read those papers yet. I need to read those papers. Um, so you're always, always, always learning, and I, and I think that may be at, at the end of the day what what matters more than a particular degree. There are absolutely positions where certain credentials or calling cards. I mean, like nobody's going to hire me to be their chief scientific right. officer, right? Um, but for a CEO role, there are many different backgrounds that are yeah. successful. Like, there's not a single phenotype. There are common phenotypes, but not singular phenotypes. Yeah, that makes sense. I I, I just, uh, like I really, you know, I thought about it. I really don't know if because there's way more companies and way more jobs now, it's easier to crack the industry now than it was when, when you were just getting out of college and no one really knew what biotech was. Yeah. <laughs> true. That's true. Yeah, but I think that's great. I mean, I, I like that's that's the ultimate um success of the industry is that it's grown so much and that so many young people yeah. are excited to get into it. Like that's fabulous. I still remember so when I was a senior in Cornell, there's one other person, Doug Ansi, he and I are still good friends, uh, who was also a bio major, and, and we were like the only two people in the entire, biology is a pretty big major at, at Cornell, um, the only two people who had some idea of something other than PhD or medical school. And we were both in Rita Calvo's genetics and society class, and we would like walk out of the class talking about the class, and then we would talk about like, oh my God, surely there's a place for us in the world somewhere. <laughs> and he... He went to law school and then, you know, ended up so became a lawyer doing biotech deals and eventually went into venture capital and, and worked for companies as well. So we both ended up in biotech, slightly different paths, but um, you know, we were the only two at the time. And now, you know, like they do seminars on yeah, how to exactly. get biotech. Yeah, everything's changed, which is fantastic. You know, if people see it as a career, um, wow, yeah. that's wonderful. That's great. We need. We need, I mean, obviously I'm a little bit biased. We need people to be interested in other things too, but I happen to think biotech is pretty awesome. So, um, you know, I think that more and more young people being excited to come into biotech is freaking yeah. awesome. We, we need it. There's so, there's so much wonderful science. That's the thing is that the raw material in this industry is science. 
there is so much wonderful science that is worthy of people investing their lives in to turn it into medicines, to turn it into diagnostics, to turn it into vaccines, you know, and a lot of other things. I mean, I think there's endless creativity. It's really hard. It's not going to be for everybody. It's the daunting, daunting industry. Um, as I often say, you will have these soul crushing moments, uh, but you'll also have these incredibly uplifting moments. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you wake up in the morning and you're standing in front of the mirror and you're brushing your teeth and you're thinking about the day ahead, you have no doubt in your mind about your yeah. purpose and, and the worthiness of what you're engaged in. Like you don't yeah, worry about that. You worry about a lot of other stuff, but you don't worry about that. And that, that's yeah. pretty fundamental. Uh, I think you may have just answered this question, but uh, you know, given that you sort of, when you got out of college, you knew you wanted to be in biotech, right? And the question is, do you still yeah. want to be in biotech? And I would preface that by saying, I, I assume that yeah. some business schools would love to have you on their faculty, for, for example. I don't know. Yeah, you know, um, and I do, I do the occasional lecture, and, and I, I do enjoy that. Um, but, you know, I like building stuff. I want to go yeah. build more stuff. So there's the answer. So there's the answer. Yeah, I like building um, stuff. Yeah, this has been great. I really, I mean, I learned stuff. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the time. Oh, my pleasure. It's, 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 it's fun. I mean, you know, we don't often step back and think about how all the pieces of our, our life link together. But, you know, when you, you have the opportunity for a conversation like this, you kind of see how some things like, wow, that doesn't yeah, really it do it all things. links up. <laughs>
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.